The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church for study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC4. And this is Secret Church for episode 8. Oh, um, goodness of God. Holiness, integrity, love, mercy, grace, justice, wrath, jealousy. Holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's the only attribute of God that's mentioned three times in a row in a succession like that. It's like Scripture's putting a bold or italics or underline on it. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. This doesn't mean that His holiness is more important than all the other attributes, but it does mean we need to pay attention to the holiness of God. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means He is perfectly unique. He's unique. He's different. He's unique from us. There's nothing like them. To whom then will you compare me or who is my equal, God says in Isaiah chapter 40. He is completely unique, perfectly unique, and he's completely separate. He's separate from us, unique from us and separate from us. And then he is absolutely pure. We are all sinners. God stands over against us, not only as one who's unique from us, separate from us, but he is ethically, morally pure. He is untouched by sin. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate uh, wrong. Tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. He is untouched by sin, and he is intolerable of sin. You can't see the Lord without holiness because he doesn't tolerate sin. Untouched by sin and intolerable of sin. How does God reveal his holiness? So many ways throughout Scripture. He reveals his holiness through people. He disciplines his people so we may share in his holiness. He he reveals his holiness through places. Exodus 3, Joshua 5, both times when God says, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy. And it's holy because God is there in his holiness. Picture is God showing his holiness through the law, Leviticus chapter 11. This is when he says, be holy because I am holy. Here's my law. It displays my holiness. You follow this, you'll reflect my holiness. He displays his holiness through the prophets. He displays his holiness through his judgment. This is the picture in Joshua 7 of Achan's sin. Achan commits a sin and jeopardizes the blessing of the presence of God on the entire people of God. Acts chapter 5. Remember what happens there. This is the beginning of the early church. And Ananias and Sapphira come in. Ananias comes in first. He deceives and falls over dead. Sapphira comes in. She deceives and she falls over dead. And it says in Acts 5.11, great fear sees the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Well, I would say so. <laughs> that happens at your church. That happens here at Brook Hills. It, it, it hinders church growth. When people start falling over in worship, uh, it's not always uh, God is more interested in the sanctity of his people than he is the size of your church. He is more interested in the sanctity of his people than he is the size of any church. He's very serious about showing his holiness through his judgment. He shows his holiness through his son, through Jesus, who is without sin. And he shows his holiness through his church. We are intended to be a demonstration of the holiness of God. This is why we must not be lazy when it comes to holiness. We are intended to be a demonstration of the holiness of God in the communities where we live. We would see, they would see, people would see the holiness of God in us, the holiness of God. Next, the integrity of God. Think about integrity of God. It sounds kind of interesting. You might be thinking, what do you mean? Think about it in three ways. First of all, his genuineness, meaning God is true. He is real. In a world of artificial, God is real. He's not fabricated. He's not constructed. 
This is picturing Jeremiah is talking about worthless wooden idols that are fabricated. And we live in a society where truth, that which is true is, is made as, well, it's, all truth is relative or all truth is, um, is a matter of opinion. All truth is subjective to this or that. God is true. He's true. Not only his genuous, but his veracity. Not only is he true, but God always tells the truth. God always represents things the way they really are. He's, his, what God says is always accurate. He does not lie or change his mind. Every word of God is flawless. So his genuineness, he is true. His veracity, he tells the truth. And third, his faithfulness, he always proves true. He always keeps his promises. God always fulfills what he says he'll do. And we've talked about that earlier. Implications of God's integrity. God is the final standard of truth. All truth is God's truth. And this should encourage us in the many endeavors, even studies that are represented. I know we've got a lot of college students here tonight. All kinds of studies, humanities, technology, this or that. All, all truth is God's truth. It comes back to the fact that God is true. And it's true because God has made it true. Because God's word is, because God is true, his word is trustworthy. We can trust his word because he is true. And finally, third implication, we are imitators of God's integrity. We must love truth. We must hate falsehood. We, we must not lie, not just because it's wrong, but because it does not reflect the truth of our God does not reflect the character of our God. That's why he says it so strongly in the Ten Commandments. The Lord detests lying lips in Proverbs 12. He delights in men who are truthful. Holiness, integrity. Third, love. God is love, which means this is, this is one of those doctrines that it can be so manipulated and abused and perverted. There's a great book. I don't think I have it in the recommended reading called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. But what does it mean for God to be love? It means God eternally gives and shares himself. We've talked about that because he is completely love. He eternally gives and shares himself. Now, let's put all this together like we've been talking about. God's love exists in himself. You've got two passages there. It's all over Scripture. We talked about how God didn't create us because he's lonely, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had communion with each other. There was love, a relationship that existed in himself. God's love exists in himself. God doesn't need us in order for love to be possible. God's love exists in himself. Second, God's love initiates with himself. Initiates themselves. People say, well, what did God see in me that he would save me from my sins? God saw absolutely nothing in you. Nothing. Initiated with himself. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewer, fewest of all peoples. God did this. Initiated with himself. This is Romans 5 when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were all, every single one of us, completely undeserving of his love, Christ died for us. His love initiates with himself. God's love centers on himself. Isaiah 43, one of the most beautiful passages. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over. When you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. I am the Lord your God. You're precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. It's an incredible passage. Gets to verse 7. You, I created you for my glory. Loved you for my glory. We've talked about this. The demonstrations of God's love. How do we know God loves us? Number one, he pursues his people. John Bunyan, I love it. John Bunyan talks about how God is the hound of heaven. 
Luke chapter 15, it's the, it's the father running after the prodigal son. It's Exodus 33, speaking face to face with men as a man speaks with his friend. He pursues his people. He provides for his people. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He protects his people. I love Zephaniah 3.17. I would encourage you to hide this, this scripture in your heart. The Lord quiets you with his love and he rejoices over you with singing. What a picture. Just let that imagery soak in. He quiets you with his love and he rejoices over you with singing. Next, he persists after his people. He is slow to anger. He has unlimited patience, 1 Timothy chapter 1 says. His patience is his goodness toward those who continue to sin over and over. He's patient. He persists after his people. Anybody thankful for second chances, third chances, fourth, fifth, sixth? Are thankful that God persists after his people. So what are the effects of God's love? Number one, we express love to God. Just let that soak in, the idea that 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We have the privilege of loving God. First and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. We love God. We express love to God. And second, we extend love to others. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other as I have loved you. The reality is, don't miss this, God's love is always evident in his people. Always evident. We're going to unpack this some more tomorrow morning uh, here at Brook Hills in 1 John. But you look at chapter 2 and chapter 4. If we do not love, then God is not in us. God's love will always be evident in his people. If there is no love, then there is no God there. That's the picture that 1 John 2 and 1 John 4 is giving us. All right, his mercy and grace. I'm going to combine these together and talk about how mercy is his love applied specifically in our suffering and his grace is his love applied specifically in our sin. So we'll start with mercy. The mercy of God is the love of God applied to our suffering. When you think about the mercy of God, we're thinking about, and we won't read all these verses, but tender compassion toward the needy. Compassion toward those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. To blind men who are calling out, have mercy on me. Tender compassion toward the needy. Strong comfort for those who are suffering. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. And deep concern for the hurting. When we're hurting, God's mercy means he has concern for us. He has compassion on us. It's the picture in Exodus chapter 30, chapter 3 when he says, I've seen the misery of my people suffering in Egypt. And I'm showing them mercy. When we are suffering, God is merciful. Then you get to the grace. The grace of God is God's love applied to our sin. To our sin. The picture here is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. This is the God of all grace who took us. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Took us as objects of his wrath and brought us from death to life. And he saved us by grace through faith, not from ourselves, the gift of God. People have taken this acronym, God's grace, and said it's, it's God's riches, it's Christ's expense. And I want to remind you, grace means there's no merit in us. It involves no merit in us. There's nothing in us that elicits grace. If there was, it wouldn't be grace. No merit in us. And second, no compensation from us. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, you don't pay God back for his grace to you. As soon as you say, look at all Jesus did for me, now I'm going to do this for him, to pay him back for the debt. I could never repay, but I'm going to try to pay this back. As soon as you try to pay back, you undercut grace. It's grace because it can't be paid back. No compensation from us, no merit in us. 
Grace is the motive behind our salvation. It's why we are saved, because of the grace of God. It's the guarantee of our salvation. Romans 4, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. The reason our salvation can be guaranteed is because of grace. We're going to unpack that in the morning, which, by the way, you can pray for that. I'm a little concerned. Don't hold me accountable if you're here tomorrow morning for anything I say after these last two nights. So anyway, the grace and mercy of God. Think about it. The grace and mercy of God, number one, they are eternal. They are eternal. The grace of God toward his children, mercy of God towards his children will never end. Second, free, free. We're justified freely by his grace, the redemption that came by Christ. It is completely free. And third, sovereign. What I mean by that is Exodus 33:19. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Then he says these words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Grace and mercy rest in the prerogative of God and no one else. They're free, eternal and sovereign. Now you take love, mercy, and grace, couple that with these next three attributes, justice, wrath, and jealousy. Justice of God means that God administers his kingdom in accordance with his law. In accordance with his law, he administers his kingdom. And what the Bible teaches is that God is always fair. He does not show favoritism. People say, when you look at that picture of sovereign grace, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, you say, well, that's not fair. We want to talk about fairness. You don't want to talk about fairness before this God without grace and mercy in the picture. It's fairness before this God involves condemnation for sin. It's what we all, all deserve, warrant because of our sin. God is always fair. The question is, how can he show grace and mercy to us? That's what we're about to get to. He's always fair and he is always right, upright and just as he. All his ways are just. Now, what does it mean? The judgment of God is, first of all, authoritative. And by that I mean a judge, in order for a judge to be a judge, to show justice, administer justice, that judge has to have authority, has to have the power to execute a sentence. Judgment of God is authoritative. Second, it's eternal. Psalm 73, I would encourage you, go back and read that psalm. It's a great psalm. It's the psalmist wrestling with, I see the wicked prospering all around me. I can't understand how God can be just and all of the wicked prospering around me. And he gets to the end and he says these words. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. The picture of judgment being eternal is, is, is bedrock truth because it reminds us that all injustice and all evil that we see in the world will one day have its end and evil will not reign in the end, that good will reign in the end because God is just. This is a bedrock truth. The judgment of God is authoritative, eternal, and irreversible. Irreversible. And I want you to, I want you to listen to these words very, very closely with me. They, and I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. 
then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Ladies and gentlemen, you do not want to go one-on-one -on -one with this God. Not without Christ, you don't. You don't want to go one-on-one -on -one with this God. If you have not believed in this God, trusted in this God as Savior, if there is any inkling in you that would believe that maybe God is the judge that he says he is, I encourage you to throw aside everything in your life and find out if he is. This is far too important to not deal with. His judgment is eternal, and it is irreversible. Justice and other attributes, you put all this together, and you see the beauty here. Love without justice is mere sentimentality. I love, but I don't care about that which is right and wrong. That's, that's, that's emotionalism. It's sentimentality. A just love is far superior to an unjust love. And you think about omnipotence. Omnipotence without justice is brutality. What if God was all-powerful, but he wasn't just? You have unrighteousness reigning rampant in all of creation. You put them all together, love, justice, and omnipotence together are a glorious reality. Beauty is, they, these love and justice, omnipotence, they don't conflict. They come together in beautiful unity. The Bible teaches we are recipients of his justice, meaning God will be just toward us. This is the beauty of what happens at the cross, according to Romans chapter 3. God sent Jesus to the cross so, to, to, so that he would be presented as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood to demonstrate his justice. So that, Romans 3, 25 and 26 says, so that he can be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. At the cross, God shows himself to be just. God does punish sin. That is what the cross is about. But not just just at the cross, God does show himself to be justifier. He justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He makes right those who trust in him based on the cross. We are recipients of his justice, and we are imitators of his justice. I've got a couple scriptures listed there from the minor prophets. You look throughout the minor prophets in particular, you will see the justice of God emphasized. God is very serious about his justice being demonstrated in his people. His people live for social justice, for justice and culture that we live in. Justice of God, the wrath of God. What does that mean? What does it mean? This, this attribute of God we don't think about much. What does it mean for him to be wrathful? Well, number one, it means that God intensely hates all sin. You hate wickedness, Psalm 45 says. You cannot tolerate wrong, Habakkuk 1.13. He intensely hates all sin. That's what his wrath means. And second, his wrath means that God intensely hates all sinners. All sin and all sinners. You're thinking, what, whatever happened to God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Well, the Bible happened to that. <laughs> Psalms chapter 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, We are objects of his wrath. Our cliches cannot stand in light of the word of God. He intensely hates all sin and intensely hates all sinners. Do not minimize this. If so, we minimize what's happening at the cross. He intensely hates all sin and intensely hates all sinners. And it makes sense. It makes sense. 
I'm a father of two boys. Anything that would pull them away in a wrong way, I would hate that. Anything would pull them away from that which is good and best for them, I would hate that. That is a good thing for a father to hate anything that pulls his children away from that which is satisfying. You see how his love and his wrath most certainly go together. No question. Why does he hate sin? Because it pulls us away from the infinite satisfaction that is found in him. It's a good thing that God has wrath and intensely hates all sin. The picture of love without wrath means it would be indifferent. Oh, I, I love my kids, but I don't care if somebody pulls them away in a bad way. No, that's not love. Justice without wrath would be ineffective. Well, I have, I, I'm just toward that which is wrong, but I have no, carry, no authority to carry out a sentence upon it. You put love, justice, and wrath together, you've got an indescribable picture, picture of God, and it is core to the gospel. I want you to think about how the gospel brings all of this together. The reality of the gospel is, number one, we deserve the wrath of God because we are sin, sinners, we have sin. God intensely hates all sin, all sinners. God loves all that which is good and holy and right, and he hates all that which is opposite. And ladies and gentlemen, you are opposite. I am opposite. The beauty of it is, though, at the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. This is the picture. We've been talking about it some here at Brook Hills. This is the picture of the cross. It's Jesus in the garden, cowering, sweating, blood. Why? Why? Was it because he was afraid of a Roman cross and Roman nails? No. Absolutely not. Was he afraid of what was about to happen, a crown of thorns about to be put in his head? No. There were people in that first century after him who went to crosses, not just nailed there, they were burned there, and they went there singing. They went there joyously. Did they have more courage than Christ? Absolutely not. Why was he cowering? Why was he sweating blood in such agony in the garden? Listen to what he says. Father, let this cup pass from me. From Isaiah to Revelation, the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath, filled with the fury of God's wrath. That's the picture. Jesus goes to that cross. It's not a picture of being put on a wooden cross and having spear thrust into him, and all the things we always often glamorize almost. The picture is, in that holy moment, all the wrath of a holy God is poured out on his Son. All the wrath and righteous anger of God towards sin, your sin, my sin, poured out on his Son in that moment. One preacher described it as you or I standing 100 yards in front of a dam 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide, filled to the brim with water. In one instant, the wall of that dam is stripped away, and that water comes flooding right towards you. And the moment before it hits your feet, the ground in front of you opens up and swallows up every single bit of it. Jesus on that cross took the cup of God's wrath, drank down every single drop, and when he finished the last drop, he turned the cup over and said, it is finished. And Jesus satisfied the wrath of God Do your sin and my sin. This is the gospel. We cannot minimize this by minimizing sin. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, and we are saved from the wrath of God. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved through his life? God's wrath is a motivation for our purity. If God hates sin, how can we be casual with sin? How is it possible? It's not possible. God's wrath is a motivation for our purity, motivation for our evangelism. Romans 9, when Paul says, 
Paul says, I would give up my salvation for the sake of my brethren, the people of Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is true, if we really believe this, if we really believe this, then how can we not go to 600 million Hindus and Muslims in northern India and take the gospel to them? If they are truly headed to an eternity separated from the blessing presence of God, separated from the love and the mercy of God, under the wrath of God, then how can we live our lives here like it doesn't matter what's going on over there? We've got to do church here for the sake of what God is doing in the nations because His wrath is real and His grace is good. And we know this. And if we know this, we must live, abandon our lives to make this gospel known among the nations. If we're not, then we don't know this gospel. God's wrath is a motivation for our evangelism, mission. It's a motivation for our worship. As unbelievers, we should fear God in His wrath. As believers, we should exalt God in His wrath. Okay, last characteristic of God, the jealousy of God. Now, what does this mean? We obviously know that jealousy can have a negative connotation. Can it have a positive connotation? Yes, it absolutely can. The jealousy of God means that God is deeply committed to His glory. Exodus 25, you see listed there, all the mosaic references to God's jealousy have to do with idol worship in some way. We don't think about jealousy as a desirable attribute, but we've talked about it. God exalts himself. God has a right to exalt himself. That's because he's God, and so it makes sense. And I've got written there, he is supremely secure and supremely satisfying. And this is important because oftentimes the negative connotation of jealousy we have, we're jealous because we think, say, say you got a, a high school guy and he's uh, dating a girl or wanting to date a girl, and he gets jealous because she starts hanging out with another guy. Well, why is he jealous? Well, because he's insecure, because he thinks this guy is going to show him up, because he thinks, well, this guy is going to make her happier than he could. And so he gets jealous about that. And he starts where that's not the picture of God and his jealousy. God is supremely secure. He is supremely satisfying. He's not worried that you or I are going to find someone or something that is better than him. He knows there is nothing better than him. And that's, as a result, he is jealous for our affections, which means the second thing, God is deeply committed to our good. And this is a great thing in my relationship with my wife. It's a good thing that I am jealous for my wife's affections. Because of my jealousy for her affections, that means that any attempt to draw her affections away from me by anyone will be met with the strongest of force. <laughs> Just want to make sure that's clear. Any, any questions? <laughs> Strongest force. I want you to think about it. It's good to know that any effort of the adversary to pull us away from the goodness of God, we met with the strongest of force from our God. He is deeply committed to our good. His jealousy then brings great comfort because he will protect us. He will protect us from that which would pull us away from him. His jealousy brings great hope because he will keep us. He will keep us close to himself. His jealousy breeds great worship. I love the picture in Hosea too. He will allure us to himself because he is supremely secure and supremely satisfying. He allures us to himself. What does this mean for us? Because God is jealous, and this sums up all these attributes, because God is jealous, we must be zealous for his glory. You can't sit back in passive Christianity when you're following a God who is jealous for his glory. 
we must be zealous for his glory and we must be zealous for our good. You mean, what do you mean? You mean we should desire good? Yes, because we find all goodness and satisfaction in God. I put on the Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, when he says, because you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. This is actually the first sermon I ever preached was uh, on this particular text. Um, uh, I, I remember I got up uh, and I, I had a bottle of water. And uh, I got up before I said anything. I took a sip of the water and I, and I spit it out in front of me. And, uh, <laughs> and I, said, uh, I said, that's what God thinks of you if you're lukewarm. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I don't know why I just shared that with you. Um, <laughs> it's getting late. Uh, <laughs> The picture here, and the picture here is exactly that. It is, well, not exactly that, but it is. It's God saying to his people, I will spew you out of my mouth because you lack zeal. Because you lack zeal. God is very concerned about his people being zealous for his glory and our good because we've talked about it. They go together. All of these attributes of God, if these 14 attributes of God are real and true, then how can we be apathetic in the church? It's impossible. The only reason we can be apathetic is if we don't know this God. Do you know God? Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.